coming up on Philosophy Talk. The Problem of Evil. That makes me angry. And when Dr. Evil gets angry, Mr. Bigglesworth gets upset. And when Mr. Bigglesworth gets upset, people die! Why would a perfect God create such an imperfect world? Is human nature intrinsically evil? What is your theodicy? Our guest is Michael Tooley from the University of Colorado, Boulder. Here's the plan. We get the warhead and we hold the world ransom for... One million dollars. The Problem of Evil. Coming up on Philosophy Talk. After the news. Welcome to Philosophy Talk, the program that questions everything. Except your intelligence. I'm John Perry. And I'm Ken Taylor. We're coming to you from the studios of KALW, San Francisco. Continuing conversations that began at Philosopher's Corner on the Stanford campus. Today, the problem of evil. John, this is a problem I know you treat every year in your introductory philosophy courses, so tell me a bit about it. Well, with pleasure. Actually, I'm just going to quote from the ancient philosopher Epicurus, who put it in such a good way I can't improve on it. He says, either God wants to abolish evil and cannot, or he can but does not want to. If he wants to but cannot, he is impotent. If he can but does not want to, he is wicked. If God can abolish evil and God really wants to do it, then why is there evil in the world? So now Epicurus was an ancient Greek philosopher, and the Greeks believed in lots of gods, many of whom were just troublemakers. So maybe this argument is just uh, proving the point. The world is not governed by one perfect god, but by a medley of imperfect gods. Well, that's a good point, Ken. The problem really is central to philosophers in, in the tradition of Abraham, to Jews, Christians, and Muslims. Because at least in their orthodox forms, these religions hold that there is just one God, and that God is perfect. Uh, perfect in what sense? Yeah. Well, there's some cool terminology associated with the problem. God is supposed to be omnipotent, which is to say there's nothing he cannot do, should he choose to do it. And God is supposed to be omniscient, which is to say that he or she knows and sees everything. So God in this orthodox tradition is the sole creator of heaven and earth, creator of the whole universe, and he could have created it any way he wanted to, and he knew what would happen if he created it this way or that way. But And then you can ask, why did he create it just, this way, just the way he did? Take an example. He knew that Adam and Eve would eat the apple. He knew that that would make him mad, and he knew that this would mean he's going to throw humans out of the Garden of Eden. Now, so why didn't he just create an Adam that was a little more obedient, who paid more attention to what God says and less to what that darn snake and Eve, and, and Eve tell him to do? Well, that episode in the Garden of Eden doesn't seem to have been a very nice thing for God to do if he knew it was going to happen in advance. And that's, that's one form of the problem of evil. Uh, since God is omniscient and omnipotent, and he created a world with lots of suffering, including, it seems, the suffering of innocents, children, and animals. 
and he created a world that seems to be full of injustice, he must not be a benevolent God. But really, if he's perfect, I mean, he ought to be benevolent. You don't want him to be a perfect bastard, do you? You want him to be benevolent, right? Well, that gives you the more usual form of the problem as an argument against the very existence of God. Assume, for the sake of argument, that God is perfect, omnipotent, omniscient, and completely benevolent. We infer, then, that the world must be perfect, the best of all possible worlds. But it obviously isn't, so we must reject our assumption. God doesn't exist, or at least the orthodox Christian God doesn't. Seems pretty open and shut to me, and to show. But I suppose you're going to tell me it's not that simple. Hey, this is philosophy talk, Ken. Nothing is simple. There wouldn't be any fun if it were. Of course not. Some of the greatest minds in philosophy have worked to find holes in the argument and thus defend God. Philosophers from Augustine, Aquinas, and Leibniz to contemporaries, guys that are our friends like Peter von Inwagen, Alvin Plantinga, and Robert Adams. A lot of good and interesting philosophy has come out of this. By the way, here's one more term. These defenses of God are often called theodicies. So did we get one of these theoditions or whatever they're <laughs> called to be, I guess? No, quite the opposite. We have Michael Tooley, who thinks that uh, the th- who, who really enjoys poking holes in theodicies. Uh, he, he thinks the problem of evil is a huge problem for believers. And, and by the way, he's quite an important philosopher, quite apart from his uh, interest in the philosophy of religion. So it should be an interesting show then. And we'll start by considering the holes philosophers claim to have found in the argument, that is, the theistic responses to the problem of evil. Then we'll look at the responses by skeptics, those who claim the problem of evil really is a very serious problem for people who believe in God. Then we'll move to a more general problem. How should we think about injustice and suffering in the world? We'll look at theistic perspectives and also atheistic perspectives on this question. But first, our roving philosophical reporter, Polly Stryker, went to Grace Cathedral in San Francisco. There she talked to someone for whom the problem of evil isn't just a philosophical abstraction, but a part of the fabric of life. She files this report. Why does God allow evil to exist? This question plagues people in the face of the Holocaust, Darfur, or a teenager gunned down on a Saturday night. It's understandable that some people might question the very existence of God when confronted with such evil. I lived in New York. I lived in New York on September 11th, and so I lived in the aftermath of that question. You, you must have heard it too. Where was God on September 11th? Mary Haddad is canon pastor or second in command at Grace Cathedral. She says it's fallacious to say that God allows evil to exist. Rather, Haddad would have people think about who God is. Are we thinking of God as Superman? Are we thinking of God as magician, being able to extract the direction of the planes? I mean, think that's what people were asking, were questions that were really meant to parse who God is. Who God is gets to the heart of things for Haddad. She finds fault with the argument that God is somehow all-powerful and could control what happens in the universe. I can thwart God's power because God can't make me love you. God can't make me love God. That's the incredible thing about this story. Um, God gives us choice to choose God. So if God can't force me to love God, right there, God is not all-powerful. As Haddad sees it, the problem of evil is connected to our capacity for free will, not to God. The whole arc of coming to faith is a fascinating mystery. Why do some people have faith and why 
do some people not have faith? Why, you know, the capacity to respond um, says we have free will. So God as creator, we understand, gave us the capacity to choose between choosing God and not choosing God, between choosing good and choosing evil. Canon Pastor Haddad says the God she knows would never allow evil to happen. And yet, she gets asked regularly why God allows bad things to happen to good people, that it's somehow God's will. It's then that Haddad shares her own journey of pain and suffering. My father died in a tornado, um, sudden, tragic. It was, it was as bewildering an event as a 20-year-old could experience. I, I could not accept thinking that uh, for some reason God needed to, to take my father's life at the age of 58. I, 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 I'd be an atheist. Haddad says evil and random acts simply exist in the world. Who knows why? In spite of the insurance agents who would cause such things acts of God, I would say God has nothing to do with those so-called acts of God. And yet the act of God was in my own healing and transformation and my own capacity to, to heal from this experience of death. It's abstract saying, could God have stopped the tornado? I mean, what, what the heck? How can I answer... There isn't a human being, scientist, meteorologist who can answer that question. So a lot of theology is, you know, if it's not helpful, what's the point? In the end, Haddad says, the answer to the problem of evil lies within us. You know, to all the questions, you know, where, where was God? You know, where was God in the tsunami? Where was God in uh, 9-11? Or where was God in the Holocaust? Um, you know, God could be saying, where, where are you? For Philosophy Talk, I'm Polly Stryker. It's the problem of evil. I'm John Perry, and with me is Ken Taylor. And you can join our conversation by calling toll-free at 1-800-525-9917. That's 1-800-525-9917. John, I know that you've thought a lot about the problem of evil, and I know that your thinking is inspired by David Hume. And just to set this up a little bit, tell me more about how David Hume thought about this problem. Well, I do think the problem of evil is one of those philosophy problems where uh, it's hard to improve on a treatment that's a couple hundred years old, and that would be Hume's in the Dialogues on Natural Religion, which he published. Well, he didn't publish. It was published posthumously, interestingly enough, by his friend Adam Smith. But in, in the Dialogues on Natural Evil, Hume makes what I think is an absolutely key distinction which is now called the distinction between the, the logical and the evidential problem of evil. Hume puts it like this. He says, if you're convinced ahead of time, before you look at the world, so to speak, that the world was created by a perfect God, and then you look at the world, you may be disappointed, but nothing you see, no amount of evil, no amount of suffering could really show you that you ought to give up that assumption because... If you believe in a perfect God, that God is so complex, so infinitely more complex than us that we wouldn't really expect to but understand why him. You, why would you believe in a perfect God? In the I mean, you have this deluge of pain and suffering, you know, the woes and cries of pleasure of humanity. You measure which is stronger. I mean, the woes are pretty strong. Well, so that, why would you believe in such a God in the first place? Well, that's kind of that. Well, you might believe in the God in the first place because of revelation, because you think God has spoken to you. 
uh, because of some really uh, uh, good a priori argument. But that's, that's the other hand. If you come at the problem neutral, you're just going to look at the world and see if it's likely that this world was uh, created by God. And that's the problem that he's basically dealing with in this great book, The Dialogues on Natural Religion, because he's dealing with what's called the, the argument from design, which says, look around the world. It was obviously created by so- something uh, that was intelligent. And Hume says, yes, it, it, I mean, Hume actually accepts that conclusion in the end. Yes, it was probably designed, probably created by something that bears some remote analogy to human intelligence. But if you look at the evidence, nothing suggests benevolence. So, mm-hmm. if you, Not malevolence, not benevolence, just probably doesn't care. Just an indifferent, neutral yeah. thing out there. Probably that, with some intelligence. Right. So if you start out believing in God already, then the the argument from evil is not going to argue you necessarily out of that belief, but if you start out with an open mind, you're not going to be uh, you're not going to be uh, argued into the belief in a god. I mean, evil will convince you. Oh my God! There's maybe there's not a malicious god out there, but there certainly isn't a benevolent god out there. Yeah, the, the analogy I, I like is this: if you come to Stanford as a freshman. And you, and you have, have read about Stanford's tremendous registrar, who was the best trained, most competent registrar in the world, and everybody admires this registrar. And then you look at the time schedule and you say, gosh, this seems like a mess. I can't take the courses I need. They eat at odd times. The courses are halfway across campus. But uh, this must be the best that a human being can do because I know this registrar is a genius. But if you're another freshman and you've never heard of the registrar and you look at the time schedule, you'll say, this registrar is an idiot. Yeah, who's in charge here? <laughs> we we, we want to know what you think about this. Do you, uh, do you start out believing in a benevolent God and then can't be convinced out of it by uh, observing the evil? Or you start out as a neutral observer? 1-800-525-9917. That's 1-800-525-9917. Or as always, you can email us at f- comments at philosophytalk.org. We're very eager to hear from you. So, John, but here's the thing. Uh, The student on the Stanford campus thinks that whoever the registrar is, he has, or it has, the student's good in mind, or should have the student's good in mind. Why should we think that God has our good in mind anyway? I mean... (laughs) Well, well, uh, interesting question about the registrar. Uh, uh, The student's complaints, do you think they carry as much weight as the (laughs) faculty complaints? Um, That's that's another interesting question. all you could really get, I mean, who, if, if you look at evil in the world, what could you have in mind? Well, there's all this natural evil, the suffering of animals, this, you know, it seems to be built into evolution, the struggle for existence. So, I mean, a, a really intelligent and perfect God seems like it could have done better for animals. Maybe it could have done better for humans. But how do we know that there isn't some higher form of being that the world really is set up to make happy? Tough questions, and we want your help thinking about them. 1-800-525-9917. You're listening to Philosophy Talk, and today we're discussing the problem of evil. We've stated what the problem of evil is and looked at some responses to it. We're going to continue looking at the arguments from both sides of the theistic fence. Join us by calling toll-free 1-800-525-9917. That's one 800 Five two five nine nine one seven, or send us an email at comments at philosophytalk.org. The problem of evil, plus your calls and emails when Philosophy Talk continues. But more than that, I want to be bad. I want to be The problem of evil is a question that occurs to a lot of people without philosophical training. Almost every thoughtful person who grows up religious is confronted by it at some point. 
Has this problem challenged you, or maybe it's even destroyed your faith, or led to a deeper understanding of it? We want to know. I'm John Perry. And I'm Ken Taylor, and this is Philosophy Talk. The toll-free number is 1-800-525-9917. That's 1-800-525-9917. Or, as always, you can email us at comments at philosophytalk.org. We've got a caller in the line now, Dirk from San Francisco. Welcome to Philosophy Talk, Dirk. Hello. Hello. What's your comment or question? Oh, well, I guess you guys were talking about David Hume uh, believing in a, a God that uh, existed but didn't really care much about um, his creation. I just, I, I just wonder why, if, if, if uh, what Hume would say about the purpose of, of his creating a universe that he didn't care about. Well, Hume's idea, now, now we need to go back. Hume died in 1776. That's why that year is important in history, I think. Uh, 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 so he died before Darwin and the uh, theory of evolution. He did actually himself come up with a sort of version of, of survival of the fittest, but he doesn't go with that. In the end, he's, he says he's convinced by the argument from design. He doesn't say this very clearly because it's a dialogue or a and he's ironic, but but the way I read it, he says in the end, Philo, his mouthpiece says, well, probably the most probable hypothesis is that the world was designed by a being or beings that bear some remote analogy to human intelligence. But he says, beyond that, we don't know anything. So all these other philosophers, and, and particularly their religious sidekicks, their ministers that are telling you how you ought to live, based on their arguments for the existence of God, uh, that's just falderall. Uh, so he really didn't have an answer to what the world was all about. He said as far the best we can do is to say, well, it seems to so show some signs of intelligent design, and probably if he had lived a couple centuries later, he would have said, even that's pretty shaky given Darwin. So thanks for the call, Dirk. And now we're joined by our guest, Michael Tooley. Uh, who is a professor of philosophy at the University of Colorado Boulder, co-author of Knowledge of God. Uh, Michael, welcome to Philosophy Talk. Right, I'm sorry about the problem. Uh, the radio, the campus radio station where I am yeah. was flooded. Oh, Michael, don't, uh, don't, 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 don't worry about that. Don't you worry know, about that. You know, there's, a, there's a theme throughout Philosophy Talk. Whenever we talk about God, we get glitches. I, I, think, <laughs> it's, it's, I think it's the hand of God. But, Michael, what we... What, what do you think is the best defense against the problem of evil? We've been plugging the problem of evil, made a couple distinctions, uh, and so I think our listeners know what the problem is, but what, what's the best defense? What's, what's the most common or the most persuasive defense on the part of the theist to the problem of evil? Well, uh, there's sort of different answers to that. I mean, I like to distinguish between approaches that put forward a theodicy that try to give uh, reasons why a, uh, an all-powerful, all-knowing, perfectly good being would be justified in allowing evil. And typically, uh, there's appeals to such things as uh, the value of free will. There's also appeal to the idea that um, there are goods uh, which uh, are connected logically to the suffering and evils that we see in the world, and that outweigh those evils, and so make one justified in allowing those sorts of things. So, 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 so let me interrupt you there. Uh, uh, our, our roving philosophical reporter interviewed someone at Grace Cathedral, and she emphasized, well, look, God isn't in control of everything. God can't make you choose to love him. That, I take it, is what you'd call a free will defense. But, yeah. I mean, how can that be if God knows everything? Well, the idea is that uh, 
God can't bring about that people freely choose always to do what's right and uh, avoid freely choosing to do what's wrong. But the problem I see with the free will defense is that uh, even if one thinks that it's a good thing that people have free will, uh, it doesn't follow from that that one should never interfere with the actions they freely attempt to do. So, I mean, you know, Hitler decided that the Holocaust would be a good idea, right? Uh, God couldn't have, so to speak, forced them to freely choose otherwise, but he could later intervene to prevent the evils of the Holocaust. So I think that the free will defense, uh, in the end, is not satisfactory. But but now our uh, in, our roving philosophical reporter, the person she interviewed, whose name I should remember, but uh, 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 given that evil affects my memory, I don't, uh, said, look, that's a Superman conception of God. Uh I mean, your point, as I understand it, is God could given us free will and, and so given up a little bit of his omniscience in order to give us freedom so that we can freely choose to love him. But surely he's got enough omniscience to see that someone like Hitler is running amok, and why couldn't he perform a little miracle, like maybe make Hitler drown in the bathtub as a kid or but something? Let me, let me try something here, because we had a guest a few of uh, uh, several weeks or mon- months back who said, well, look. You know, what God gives us the will to do is in all situations make the best of it. So if you're a Jew in the concentration camp, you can bear up with courage and never give in, and that's a test of your character. And he said, he knew that he was getting in a little trouble, but he said, and in a way, the, the Jews were fortunate that God gave them this test. Because, look, this thing lasts forever. The earthly life is just a stage, a testing ground. So, I mean, free will and its consequences are part of the testing ground and how you respond to other people's exercise of free will, like how you respond to Hitler, whether you resist and stand up with courage, that's a, that, that shows something about you. Right. What's wrong with that answer, Mike? You have to be careful, Ken, because if you're too persuasive, Michael might have a religious experience and be <laughs> converted, and then he wouldn't make much of a guess. I but we'll, I assume that, we'll assume that hasn't happened. I mean, I mean, imagine that argument was put forward, and uh, the generals who uh, were plotting to uh, kill Hitler and attempt to do so but were unsuccessful thought, yeah, gee, uh, this is a real opportunity for the Jews and others and so on uh, to respond, you know, with uh, desirable traits of character to the suffering that they're undergoing. But, I mean, we don't think that way in the human case. We think that um, these opportunities are best eliminated, right, and that if someone is attempting to, uh, say, rape or murder someone, uh, that we ought to intervene to prevent it, and we think it would be seriously wrong not to do so. And so the question is, why would the situation be different if we were more powerful, uh, if, say, we were all powerful? That's an excellent question. You, uh, we'd like the, our listeners to weigh in on questions like that and others. We're talking about the problem of evil with our guest, Michael Tooley, uh, 1-800-525-9917. That's 1-800-525-9917. Or, as always, you can email us at philosophytalk dot org and we have Isabella from Berkeley on the line. Welcome to Philosophy Talk, Isabella. Hi, thank you. Um, I think the biggest challenge to me when it comes to evil is problems um, in which we're all complicit, whether we want to be or not. For example, um, agri- animal agriculture, factory farming. It's a, you know billions of animals living lives of misery, and we all we all contribute to that, even if we're vegan. Um, so I'm just curious what you'd have to so, say. So, yeah, that. thanks a lot for the question, sure. Isabella. So, Michael, there's lots of evil in the world, lots of suffering besides human suffering, all the suffering of animals that humans meet out upon them. I mean, I suppose yeah, you could that's, say... That's extremely important. And, uh, but, I mean, it's not just, you know, suffering that's taking place today. I mean, uh, animals suffered for eons before humans arrived on the scene, right? And so uh, 
humans may have aggravated the situation, but there's something which precedes the existence of humans uh, that seems, A, extremely bad, and B, it's very hard to see any justification that, again, uh, being who could have prevented it, uh, and it was good, uh, why uh, that being would not have done so. So, so Isabella, are you still on the line? Oh, okay, so I, I just want to, you know, a, a, as as a being from Nebraska, <laughs> I want to set the record straight. Absolutely, animals, I mean, the whole situation on Earth and survival of the fittest is set up so animals suffer. I see a lot of animals suffer uh, quite independently of humans. They get torn apart by other animals. It seems to me that agriculture... Uh, probably it's bad for wild animals, but it doesn't seem to me that it's A.O. Ipso uh, bad for domesticated animals who live a pretty nice life up until they're butchered. I agree with Isabella that factory farms in which we've kind of created a situation in which, like chickens mostly, uh, live a rotten life from day one. It's kind of like we've converted natural evil to human evil. Anyway, I just want to get the facts straight. Uh, but let's—I uh, want to grant the complaint, though, and I because I want to. Uh, there's a there's a puzzle that I, I, I that rising in my mind. Okay, God in the in the Genesis, I think God uh, directs Adam and Eve to be fruitful and multiply and and have dominion over all that lives or something like that. So God places the animal, all living things except for our other humans, under our dominion. That means he didn't really create the universe for them. If he's not, if they're not sort of ends in themselves in God's eyes, but just ends of ours or something like that, then their suffering, is that really relevant to the calculation of, you know, his benevolence or lack thereof? I mean, he can be benevolent toward, toward us, and we're the ultimate point of creation, but not benevolent to the animals. And so there's no argument from evil since they're not his end. You know what I mean, Michael? Well, what I want to say is that... Uh uh, the moral status of any individual, be it a human or a uh, non-human animal, depends upon its intrinsic characteristics. Uh, it doesn't depend upon the attitudes of other individuals to it, nor does it depend upon, so to speak, the purpose of any being who created them. So, well, it depends on the attitude of God toward it. If God right. views it as a meal... If you create a being that's capable of suffering, right, uh, then it seems to me that you have an obligation to... Um, try to minimize the amount of suffering it undergoes, right? Uh, that's created being, say, which is capable of suffering, and then putting it in sort of a hellish world where it would suffer almost all the time, it seems to me that would be morally wrong, and you couldn't say, well, I created it, so I can do what I want with it. It seems to me that uh, the moral status of being depends upon its intrinsic properties, and if one's capable of suffering, uh, then allowing or causing suffering to that being uh, is morally wrong uh, in itself. Let me, let me review the bidding or review the argument here. So we start off with the problem of evil. How can there be a God if there's evil, since God would have created the best of all possible worlds? The first answer is, well, a lot of evil has to do with free will, and the world is better with free will, even if it brings some evil with it. God chose, gave us free will so we could choose to love him and love each other, uh, and maybe pays the price with little ignorance. Then the response to that is, well, one thing is... Uh, 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 he could have freedom without having as much evil as he does. And the other is the problem of natural evil. There's lots of suffering in the world that doesn't depend on humans, like the suffering of animals, of wild animals. 
And then the answer to that is, well, the animals weren't the focus of God's creation, so their suffering doesn't matter. If they don't matter to him, why should they matter to us? And, and Michael says, well, suffering is suffering. And, you know, if, if, if God created us to be lab animals, uh, then why should we worship him? Well, now, again, now maybe the, God, God created us to be the, the, the kings and queens of creation, but, but do we really want to worship a God that would create so much suffering among animals? So, so look, that's where we are. There's two different arguments now for, from evil. There's two different possible conclusions. One is there isn't a God. At least there isn't a benevolent, all-knowing, all-perfect God. And one is, well, even if there is a God, it's not worth our worshiping, right? Suppose he did create the animals to be our tools, and if the animals think, well, should I worship that God or not? Well, maybe they don't have reason to worship that God, but perhaps we do. I mean, so, uh, Michael, which is it? Is the argument for evil an argument that it's irrational to believe in God, or is it an argument for it's irrational to worship God, even if he does exist? Well, it depends on the, the term God is used. The crucial question is whether uh, one is using the term God so it incorporates moral attributes. If one uses it just to mean, say, a you know, all-powerful, highly-powerful, all-knowing, or highly-knowledgeable creator of the universe, uh, being who you know could be perfectly good, could be perfectly evil, it could be morally indifferent, or anything in between, uh, then uh, the argument for evil won't have any force against God conceived of in that sort of way. But then the question, as you say, will be, is there any reason to worship that sort of God? And I would say that uh, a necessary condition for it being uh, reasonable to worship a God is that uh, perhaps not he'd be perfectly good, but at least that he'd be extremely good, right? And so I think the conclusion would be that there's no reason to worship that sort of God. If, on the other hand, you build in moral attributes, and in particular if you build in the idea of being perfectly good, uh, then the thrust of the argument is that uh, it would be irrational to believe uh, in God, uh, understood in that sort of way. Uh, we, we've got an email here from, from Charles, and he says, As someone trained in clinical psychology, I see evil as psychopathology, i.e. a personality disorder that lacks empathy. Cluster B personality disorder, antisocial, borderline, narcissistic, hysteronic, narcissistic. Why couldn't this explain evil in a way we can more readily understand? Now, now I'm not sure exactly how Charles means this. I'm sure a lot of evil in the world is caused by people with this personality disorder. But maybe he's suggesting this is this. I mean, if you read the God of the Old Testament, narcissistic, borderline, uh, <laughs> hysteronic, these words come to mind. What do you yes, think I mean, about that? Well, I think there's a, a real problem. I mean, uh, I mean, one question that one wants to keep clear when one is thinking about the existence of God is uh, the question of the existence of God sort of characterized, if you will, philosophically in terms of all-powerful, all-knowing, perfectly good being, uh, versus the gods of historical religions like Yahweh, the god of Christianity, uh, the god of Islam. Now, believers in those religions typically claim that their deity is perfectly good, but when you look at the Old Testament and you look at the killing of groups like the Amalekites and so on, you look at the New Testament or Islam with the doctrine of hell, right, then I think it's really very difficult to understand how beings to those sorts of uh, attitudes uh, and creations are attributed could be uh, anything like perfectly good. 1-800-525-9917. That's the number to join this conversation. 1-800-525-9917. And Philip in San Francisco is on the line. Welcome to Philosophy Talk, Philip. Hi, thank you. I was curious, I mean, I was listening to you, I, this question I love, and uh, I'm just wondering, don't we just automate, if we get rid of evil from the human equation, don't we instantly erase the possibility of any kind of interesting art, or real art, 
or comedy, for that matter. Because if you don't have comedy, if you don't have evil, you know, right. Satan with a big tail, you don't have irony. Michael, thanks for the call, Philip. Michael, this goes back to your thing that there, are, there may be some goods that are logically connected to the evils that there are. Right? We couldn't enjoy the goods without the evils that we experience, and, and those goods outweigh the evil that it takes to enjoy them. What do you think of that? Well, I mean, again, uh, one thing that's important, and it goes back to uh, the work of philosopher named William Moreau, is I think that once you con- concentrate on concrete evils in the world, there was a tendency from the years to think uh, simply in terms of the existence of evils and so on. If you focus on concrete evils, then you consider things like the Holocaust, you consider things like the uh, Indian Ocean uh, tsunami, I think in 2004, you think of Rose's case of a young, I think, seven-year-old girl who was brutally beaten, raped, and murdered by uh, her mother's boyfriend. And the question is uh, then whether the presence of those sorts of things is a necessary for there to be art of a certain sort, and B, uh, whether if it turned out for some reason it is, I think that's very unlikely, uh, that the world is a better place, so to speak, by having those evils together with the art, or whether it would be better uh, for both things to be absent. You're listening to Philosophy Talk. We're discussing the problem of evil with Michael Tooley from the University of Colorado. So what do you think about evil? Maybe you think the world isn't that bad. Maybe you think God's plan is just unfathomable. Maybe you have some other conception of God for which the problem of evil takes a much different shape. How do you deal with it? What's the best way to think about it? Living in a world suffused with suffering and injustice when Philosophy Talk continues. Evil, a part of God's plan, a necessary consequence of free will, the inevitable result of a universe with no purpose, run on mechanical principles with no concern for the happiness of sentient beings. What do you think? I'm John Perry. This is Philosophy Talk, the program that questions everything. Except your intelligence. I'm Ken Taylor, and to help us think about the problem of evil, we've got Michael Dooley from the University of Colorado. Before we get to Michael, I've got an interesting email here. This is uh, from Larney Fox, and he or she says, It seems to me that this whole argument is predicated on a narrow view of God. The assumption is that God is separate from the universe and not the essence of reality itself. Well, Larney's question, I think, leads into the, our theme for the third part. What, is, what kind of intellectual problem, if any, does evil pose for those who don't accept this kind of orthodox Christian conception of God as a separate transcendent person with, uh, with characteristics somewhat analogous to, to human beings? If you, if you have some other kind of religion, some more Buddhistic kind of religion, or if you're an atheist or an agnostic, is there still a problem of how we cope with evil and suffering? What do you think, Michael? Well, there's still a problem with how we cope with evil and suffering. I guess what I want to say first, though, is that if you shift from the idea of a personal deity that is a god who can act and there's power and knowledge and goodness and so on, to uh, a conception of God, maybe it's been a cystic conception where God is equated with nature in some sense, but isn't a personal uh, being capable of uh, action, then it seems to me that uh, the problem of evil doesn't pose an intellectual difficulty for that conception of God, but the thing I think that's important is that that conception of God doesn't, so to speak, answer to important human concerns in the way the uh, personal conception does. I mean, one concern that humans have is that in the end justice will be done, that good will triumph over evil. Uh, another concern, I think, is that death not be the end of human existence. And if there's a God in the personal sense, 
then I think, you know, it's reasonable to believe that those things may very well be the case. So look... But if you shift to a spinocistic conception of God, then it seems to me that there's no reason at all for thinking those important uh, human hopes and desires are likely to be fulfilled. So isn't that, doesn't that give us a practical reason to have belief perhaps beyond the evidence? Because if I believe that there is a personal God who cares for the universe and all of its creatures, and that even though its mind is outstrips my ability to comprehend, I can have confidence that the good will out, ultimately, right? If you take away that God, then I see all the evil in the world. Shouldn't I just give in to despair? I mean, there's no reason to believe, you know, antecedently that the good will out rather than the evil will out. If you look at the proportion of stuff around the world, I mean, so... Should, should... That's true, but I mean, if, if, if one thinks that it's unlikely that there is uh, an omnipotent, omniscient, and morally perfect being or any sort of close approximation to that... Uh, then one realizes that if anything is to be done about human suffering and so on, uh, it's to be done by us, by human beings, right? And so uh, it's clear that uh, it seems to me that there's a much greater importance uh, upon human action. Uh, I somewhat share your pessimism uh, about how much can be done and so on. But nonetheless, I think that uh, one has a, a stronger reason for taking, for example, worldwide poverty, malnutrition, and so on very, very seriously and attempting to change society so that these things are minimized. So, so Ken, I mean, I, I, I mean, there may be plenty of reasons for despair, but just, just in the abstract, the fact that evil may outweigh good doesn't seem to me to do it. Now, you should know this because you, you are a Cleveland Indians fan, right? <laughs> now, if you're a Cleveland Indians fan, then you, you're not under any illusion that the victories are going to outweigh the defeats. But that doesn't mean you can't go out and enjoy the victories and enjoy the good days, seldom as they may be. I mean, it's not despair. It's just kind of lowered expectations. <laughs> yeah, right. Isn't that the right approach? Well, maybe. We've got to call it in line. 1-800-525-9917. That's 1-800-525-9917. And Ricardo in San Francisco is on the line. Welcome to Philosophy Talk, Ricardo. Uh, good morning, all evildoers and well-wishers. <laughs> Uh, there's something here to be brought up about uh, biblical atrocities, first of all, when we consider God as someone who we take uh, worship in and believe in as whatever we conceive of God. But uh, we can start with the Old Testament and think about uh, burning whiners alive, complainers, angels that commit mass murder, cannibalism, genocide, and the rest of it, and wonder why we have cluster bombs and atomic weapons at this point, because we have plundered, killed, and murdered in the name of a particular god, whether you want to say a Christian god, a god of the Torah, any other god of any other agency on this world. We have a separate agency, which is spirit. And I wrote something called the Quintessential Initiation, a meditation for a world day of breaking bread to usher something new in other than our mass. So, 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 so cut to the bottom line yeah, of your the meditation, bottom line right? Is this. We consider evil something separate from us, and we look for a God to wear the placard for us. For you will gives us the agency to say we'll pull back from it or we'll pull toward it and become more of what we disdain when we speak together on these programs, but we perpetrate every day during the week in other lands for whatever empire we work for, whether above so, or so, below. So basically, it's a cop-out to blame it on God. Yeah. Blame it on ourselves. Wear our own hats. Okay. Right. Well, thanks, thanks a lot, Ricardo. So, Michael, the problem of evil grants that human beings are the source of evil, right? Uh, no, uh, not exactly. I mean... Uh, uh, I would think that, uh, you know, uh, it could well be argued that the vast amount of suffering is caused, you know, sort of by the operation of natural laws and well, so on. 
uh, distributing suffering, uh, you know, in a sort of random fashion, unrelated to the sort of moral merits or moral demerits of people. So, but I mean, regardless of, you know, the size of sort of natural evil versus, you know, evil that humans are responsible for, I mean, uh, the point is that there is an enormous amount uh, of natural evil that counts against the existence of God. I, I want to go back to my despair a, a, a bit. <laughs> and and I, don't, I don't think you guys are granting the Pascalian force of the kind of practical considerations. Should I believe in God or should I not? Right? Maybe the evidence is neutral about it. Maybe I'm convinced by Hume that, you know, if I started out as agnostic, it couldn't, uh, the, the argument couldn't force me to believe in God. But if I do believe in God, then I can face this hellish world with a kind of optimism and equanimity. If I don't, I, I'm going to give in to despair. And if I have the optimism, even if it run, outruns the evidence, I'll live better because I'll try more things. I'll have more confidence. Why not believe for kind of practical reasons. Yeah, you know, Ken, that raises an interesting issue, and, and I just want to recommend to our listeners this uh, video called The Quarrel, which you can get. This is a conversation between uh, two two Holocaust survivors who accidentally meet in Montreal. They'd gone to a yeshiva together, and, and one of them has responded very much as you're suggesting uh, to the horrors of the Holocaust. It's re-emphasized his faith uh, in God and the necessity to to really attend to the ritual and and train another generation, and so he's opened up a yeshiva in Montreal. The other one has become a a, a skeptic and, and a poet, and and achieves despair by a certain numbing to the world. Although he's a very sensitive fellow, and they have this great conversation. But the paradox is that those who experience evil the most, as opposed to philosophers, just think about it, often have the response of having their faith deepened. Uh, and this seems quite paradoxical. What do you think, Michael? Well, the comment I'd make is that uh, it seems to me that, uh, you know, if you look at people who, uh, say, were once religious, uh, as I was and many other people uh, who are philosophers, uh, but who are no longer uh, theists and so on, uh, it seems to me that on the whole, you know, uh, I don't see that the level of despair is higher among, so to speak, the group of unbelievers <laughs> as among the group of believers and so on. And so I think that, you know, that uh, you raise a psychological possibility, but I think that when it's examined, one finds that uh, that if you look at groups where uh, belief in personal God uh, is not high, and, for example, that's the case with regard to uh, top scientists in the United States. Uh, a book by a colleague of mine, Dick Stenger, uh, cited a study which said that only about 7% of people in the uh, National Academy of Science believe in personal deity. And yet I don't think that those lives are lives of despair. Well, but, um, but, but Michael, I understand that psychological point, but maybe that's a cop-out, you know, in a way, because you say, okay, you just argued me out of the belief in the existence of God, suppose you had succeeded in doing that, by pointing to the evil in the world. You know, you say the evil is so, the evil so pervades the world, natural and moral evil, that you can't possibly believe in a benevolent God. And then, once you've done that, you shrug your shoulders in the face of that evil and say, I'm going to live a happy life. Come on, how can, you, how can there be so much evil that there couldn't be a benevolent being at the basis of it, and yet you just shrug your shoulders and say, I'm going to have a, live a happy life? That's, a, that's just a psychological cop-out. That's cognitive dissonance. Well, I think that, I mean, you know, there, there, there are various virtues that are relevant here, right? And I think that one virtue is uh, the courage to see the world as it really is. Now, there are various, you know, unpleasant features of the world. One was that it was a holocaust, okay? And, you know, one could avoid that, so to speak, unpleasant belief by convincing oneself that, you know, that there was no holocaust and so on, right? But I don't think that's the road to go. I think the road to go is to look courageously in the face of truth, even when it's unpleasant. And uh, I would advocate, so to speak, the same sort of 
sense of commitment and um, the attempt to acquire the same sort of virtue in the face of the admittedly very unpleasant truth, if it is a truth, uh, that there is no omnipotent omnipotent. Suppose I told you, if you're a member of a privileged elite in a powerful and consequential country that can dominate the world and you're in the wealthy classes or upper middle class, you can say, you can say that. But... Suppose you were a, a Jew in Hitler's concentration camp or in Stalin's gulag or, or a, a black South African in, uh, in apartheid or, or a, a slave in the antebellum South. Or, I mean, all these, to tell that, tell that. I mean, what story do you tell to those people? Well, uh, lots of those. I mean, the interesting thing is about those populations is they come down on all sides. I'm, I'm going to close with a comment from one of our listeners, right? Who's, who, who, this is, uh, as you might suggest, uh, might expect from Berkeley. This is a very interesting point of view. My explanation for evil is that there are all kinds of things in this creation. And he gives some examples uh, from weeds to people and so forth. But his conclusion is, I think God is way beyond this creation. But the creatures of the that people have called God, like Yahweh in the Old Testament and Allah in the Quran, they're really demiurges. In other words, they're created creatures of this God uh, that stand to us as we stand to the weeds. They just make trouble for us getting what we want. Um, Interesting perspective from Alvin and Berkeley. Michael, on that note, I'm going to thank you for joining. you got one last quick comment, very quick. Uh, right. Well, I mean, uh, so I think that the, uh, the problem of evil is uh, one of the most interesting, important problems in philosophy. And uh, I think that uh, it's uh, something I would think and hope that ordinary people would think seriously about. Okay. I think the conclusions one reaches are very important for the way one lives one's life. Thanks so much for joining us, Michael. It's been a pleasure it's been really having good you. Talking to you all. My, our guest has been uh, Michael Tooley, professor of philosophy at the University of Colorado Boulder, co-author of Knowledge of God. So, John, very quickly, what did we learn today? Every time I consider the problem evil, I'm led back to the same conclusion. Even if there is an omnipotent, omniscient, all-perfect God. It's pointless to worship him, right? It can't do him any good, right? I mean, uh, the Old Testament God who wants to be loved, I, I don't think is perfect, and the perfect God could, could, doesn't need our love. What we ought to use this energy for worship on is the contingent thing that could benefit from being worshipped that is actually the direct cause of everything that's good about human life, namely the earth. So my religion is worship the earth, and don't worry about God. Uh, I'm not going to tell you what my religion is, but I don't see why a, a perfect God wouldn't. It's not as though he needs our worship, but the right attitude toward the perfect creator of the universe who guides all to the good, if there is such a thing, the appropriate attitude, not because he needs it, uh, is, is worship, right? Because it's all inspiring. It's at the very foundation of the creation, and it's the solver of the deepest mystery. I must admit, I just don't get it. I mean, it's like uh, like Kant thought the starry... I mean, like a lot of people worship, just think the starry heavens are awe-inspiring. I, I just don't get it. Well, for the final word, <laughs> we have Ian Scholes, the 60-second philosopher. Ian Scholes, moral relativism takes the position that morality does not reflect objective or universal principles, but instead is a byproduct of culture and personality. The 1960s, of course, were the heyday of moral relativism, as in, if it feels good, do it. To conservatives, of course, moral relativism is an absolute evil, which seems like the opposite of an oxymoron, doesn't it? As a result, even today, conservatives blame the poor 1960s for everything from President Clinton to lousy movies. Hippies are kind of thin on the ground these days, but there sure was a superabundance of charismatic chuckleheads back then, from R.D. Lang to Timothy Leary. One of those morally relative figures, largely forgotten today, was Anton LaVey, who founded the Church of Satan in Valpurgisnacht, 1966. I remember seeing him on television often. He was a striking presence with his goatee and shaved head and black outfits. He kind of looked like Ming the Merciless from the old Flash Gordon serials. 
He had a pet lion in his black house in San Francisco's Richmond district. He could often be heard in the wee hours playing his pipe organ, just like Vincent Price in the abominable Dr. Fibes. And he gained some well-known adherents back in the day, including, briefly, Sammy Davis Jr. As befitting a follower of the father of lies, Anton LaVey was a master of the art of falsehood. He said that Anton LaVey was his real name. It wasn't. He claimed to have been descended from gypsies. He wasn't. He claimed that he was technical advisor for the movie Rosemary's Baby, and he also played Satan in the flick. No and no. He claimed that Jane Mansfield died because he had cursed her. Can't prove it, of course, but doubt it. He claimed that his church had over 100,000 members. Well, try 300. He even lied or caused others to lie for him when he died. His death certificate says Halloween 1997, but his true demise occurred on October 29th. And was Anton LaVey even a Satanist? Not exactly. His church took Satan as a symbol of man, rather than the wicked deity that rules hell. LaVey believed that all gods are mere human creations, therefore worship of any god is a worship of humans by proxy. As his satanic maxim put it, I am my own god. He once described his beliefs as Ayn Rand's philosophy with ceremony and ritual added. Watered down Nietzsche, in other words, with some oogie-boogie thrown in for spice. So basically, Anton LaVey was just another scripture grifter, another con man, an atheist with a little more razzle-dazzle than most. When all is said and done, however, if you really do believe in Satan, you have to believe in God as well, don't you? So if you're a true Satanist, boy, are you backing the wrong horse. I gotta go. Ian Shows, the only man who can solve a philosophical problem in 60 seconds. Philosophy Talk is a presentation of Ben Manila Productions and the trustees of Leland Stanford Junior University, copyright 2008. Our executive producer is David Demarest. Our production coordinator is Devin Strolovich. Daniel Elstein is our director of research. Lael Weiss is our webmaster. Also thanks to Zoe Corneli, Merle Kessler, Corey Goldman, and Mark Stone. Philosophy Talk is sponsored in part by Powell's City of Books on the web at powells.com. Support also comes from the Templeton Foundation. And from various groups at Stanford University, the Friends of Philosophy Talk, and the members of KALW San Francisco, where our program originates. The views expressed or misexpressed in this program do not necessarily represent the opinions of Stanford University or of our other funders. The conversation continues on our website, philosophytalk.org. I'm John Perry. And I'm Ken Taylor. Thank you for listening. And thank you for thinking.